Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. I want to talk to you this morning about the Word of God. That's a little different. Uh, actually, quite a bit different than would be my normal position on a Sunday morning. I'd be talking to you from the Word of God. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the Word of God. I do what I do in large part because of a conviction that I hold. And the conviction that I hold is that this book that I hold in my hands is unlike any other book in the world. Infinitely higher and greater and superior to any other book that it is not just printed words on a page, that it is actually the very living Word of God. And with that conviction held tightly in my heart, then it then has some byproducts in my life, some conclusions, some focal points of my life that are determined by that conviction. That if it truly is the Word of God to mankind, the Word of God to me, then I need to know what God says because He's my Creator. He's my King. He's my Lord. That's true, by the way, of everyone in the sound of my voice. And so, a deep, strong conviction that God is ultimately the author of this book really places this book in a preeminent place in my life and in my focus in my day-to-day activities. So what I want to do for you this morning is I want to just talk to you about this book for a little bit. Every year or two, I try to make it a point in some way to address this topic. So the focal point this morning is to just look at and consider some of the aspects of this book that validate, that point to the reasonable conviction that this book is actually the very words of God. And so we're going to look at that from several different aspects and maybe one of these by itself won't build a strong case in your conviction, but all of these together, and there are many more strands if I had the time that we could go through, but the four or five that we look at this morning, I believe, will be twined, intertwined together to make a strong cord for the veracity of this being the very Word of God. And here's the first idea if you're writing notes you can write this down the Bible is the most unique book ever written 
It's the most unique book ever written. Let me just give you a couple of facts about the characteristics of the Bible that will identify its uniqueness being unlike any other book. First of all, it was written over a 1,500-year period of time. It was written over 40 generations by over 40 different authors. And those authors came from a wide cross-section of life. For example, let me just give you some examples. We have Moses, a highly educated political leader. We have Amos, a herdsman. We have Joshua, a military general. We have Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king. We have Daniel, a prime minister. We have Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Amos, a herdsman. Paul, a Jewish rabbi turned itinerant preacher. And the list goes on. Just an incredible, diverse group of people. Diverse in their focus in life. Diverse in their economic structure. Some fabulously wealthy. Some extremely poor. The authors of this book, inspired by God, some of them wrote in times of war, some of them wrote in times of peace. Some of them wrote experiencing the heights of joy, some of them wrote experiencing the depths of despair. It was written on three continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it was written on highly, highly controversial subjects. So just take a composite of all of that. and Let me ask you a question. What would you get if you tried to take authors down through history, let's say over 40, and you tried to compile their works, and they were authors that kind of spanned the full gamut of life's experiences and economic structure and social stratosphere, and then you picked writings that they had written on highly controversial subjects, and you put them together into one book, what would you have? Somebody in the first service said, a mess. And that's exactly what you'd have. You would have a mess. You would have a mess. You would have an incongruent, inconsistent pile of words that continually contradicted one another and made no sense and didn't drive at any one point but went all over the page and didn't hit anything squarely. It would be a book that would be worthless. And yet, what do we have in the Bible? What do we have in this book with all of those characteristics? Here's what we have. We have a continuous, single, unfolding storyline. A storyline that begins at the very beginning at creation and then moves through the fall of man and the 
separation of man from a place of intimacy with his creator, with his God, and then the story of that God in radical pursuit of man to do what it takes to bring a sinful man back into a relationship with a holy God centered around one person, Jesus Christ, that is throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament and what He did to accomplish it and then what He's going to do in the future to bring it to full conclusion as He restores us back to a place of paradise and even greater than the paradise in which we began. Folks, that's how put together the Bible is. 1,500 years, over 40 authors, one perfect story. You see, the Bible is the most unique book ever written. And its uniqueness, its unparalleled, incomparable uniqueness is a mark of the divine stamp that is upon it. It is the Word of God. Secondly, the Bible is not only the most unique book ever written, it is the most accurate book ever written. The most accurate book. I'm going to give you an evidence, and I, again, we could spend a lot of time going over a lot of evidence to show the accuracy of the Word of God. I'm going to give you two areas, one from archaeology, then one from prophecy. First of all, the evidence of its accuracy from archaeology. You see, there is, a, there is a focus of study, really became popular 100 years or so ago in our institutes of higher learning, and the focus is called the higher criticism. And the purpose of higher criticism is to It's comprised of those who are antagonistic to the Word of God and the message of the Word of God. And their genre of study is to discredit the Word of God, to find fallacies and inaccuracies, to basically thwart its influence in the world and to cause people to doubt its truth. And one of the ways that they've done that is they've looked at many of the stories of the Old Testament and said, well, you see right here's an example. This is clearly a bunch of fairy tales because we know from what we have studied scientifically from history and archaeology that this could never have happened. There are many, many areas where they have leveled those kind of attacks against the Word of God. And I'll just point out one of them. Joshua's conquests. Joshua, the successor to Moses who led the people into the promised land and went on a military campaign taking over the promised land as God was giving it to them as they marched against city after city and won battles that they were outmatched in as their possession of the land uh, progressed. And the higher critics said, see, that's an example right there. 
That is just so clearly a fallacy. It's a fairy tale because we know that what happened from what we have discovered in archaeology is that the settlement of the Hebrew tribes was just a very slow process of amalgamation into that land, not this victorious campaign that swept through the land. And for a while it looked like the evidence did point in that direction until a spade of the archaeologist turned over again and what was discovered was the Arma tablets or Mana tablets. They were discovered at an ancient site, the capital of Egypt. And as they were investigated, here's what we found out. They were letters. They were letters that were written to the power of the day that were requesting help, immediate military help, because there was a group of people sweeping through the land of Palestine, seizing city after city, and what they were called in these letters were the Habiru, the Hebrews. And the cities that are listed in these letters that they had taken over, cities like Megiddo and Gezer and Ashkelon and Lachish. By the way, cities that the Old Testament scriptures say that Joshua went in with his troops and conquered. There was one letter that was found, and here is, I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from it. a letter to the Pharaoh requesting military aid. The Habiru plunder all lands of the king. If archers are here this year, then the lands of the king, the Lord, will remain. But the archers, if they are not here, then the lands of the king, my Lord, are lost. You see, that discovery completely validated the story in the Old Testament of the conquering march of Joshua and the people of Israel, the Hebrews that went into the promised land to possess it as a gift given to them from God. And the higher critics were silenced. And I could tell you story after story after story like that where a certain piece of evidence was brought heavily against the word of God by the school of higher criticism only to be proven according to the precise story of scripture through a discovery of the archaeologist. God has proven that his word is accurate. Let me give you one more recent, one that you may have heard about, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now this is a a reason I'm sharing this because this is an incredibly significant find that shows the validity, the accuracy of the truth of the Word of God. There was 
some Bedouin shepherds that were tending their flock and they were looking for some stray sheep and they threw some rocks up into a cave up on a cliff and they heard the sound of breaking jars, breaking pottery. And so they climbed up to investigate and they discovered that there were clay jars that were sealed and inside of them there were leather scrolls. And this started a large-scale investigation and over the next eight years some 250-some caves were explored and in I think about 11 of those there were a number of similar sealed jars that contained very old manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, all of the Old Testament was found except the book of Esther. And so, you say, well, Barb, what does that have to do with proving the validity of the scriptures? Well, what we had prior to that discovery is that we have a copy of the Old Testament. And the date of that, the oldest copy that we had was dated 1000 A.D. 1000 A.D. And when they discovered the scrolls, the Dead Sea, they were dated 100 A.D. So what we had now was we had a thousand year old, we had a copy from 1000 A.D. that we could compare with copies of 100 A.D. So a 900 year period of time separated those early copies that we found compared to the copy 900 years later. And so the school of higher criticism would say, okay, we're going to find out how, we're going to find out how much was changed over all the generations of copying and that you cannot depend upon the truth and how it changed. And what they discovered is when they placed those 100 A.D. copies next to the 1,000 A.D. copy that we had had, they found almost perfect precision of preservation through those copies. For example, Isaiah 66 chapters when they placed that scroll of Isaiah next to that copy 1,000 years old and they looked at the difference, the only thing that was found was some spelling errors and slips of the pen. Not one change, not one single Change affected any meaning in the entire scroll of the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And what we found then is that God not only authored His Word, He has preserved it and protected it and passed it down to us accurately. It is the most accurate book ever written. The spade of the archaeologist has shown us that in those two ways and hundreds of others that I don't have time to tell you about. Now let me tell you about the evidence of prophecy. 
that highlights the accuracy of the Word of God. And I'm just going to go to the center theme of the Bible to do that. I could go a lot of directions here as well, but we're going to stick with the person of Jesus Christ because the Bible really is the story of Jesus Christ, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, He's promised the Savior is going to come. In the Gospels, He shows up. And the rest of the New Testament is the commentary on the life that He lived. And so what do we have in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, the Savior that was to come? Well, what we have is over 300 prophecies that describe very specific things about the Savior that is to come. And I'm not talking about ambiguous statements like, you'd read out of a fortune cookie, oh, you're going to have a prosperous life or... I'm talking about very specific prophetic statements like, and I'm going to just quickly read some of them to you. That the Christ, the Savior that was going to come, that His mother would conceive as a virgin. I mean, folks, if we just had that one and it came true, it'd be pretty powerful. The location of His birth to the very town where He would live as a toddler, where he would grow up, that someone would precede him as a messenger to prepare for his coming. What the messenger would say when he came to prepare the way, the region in which his ministry would begin and where it would continue, that he would be a prophet, that he would be a preacher, that he would be the great teacher, that he would perform incredible miracles, that he would be a poor man, that he would be betrayed by a friend that his betrayal, in his betrayal, that he'd be sold for exactly 30 pieces of silver. What would be purchased with the 30 pieces of silver that he would be forsaken by his disciples, that he would be accused by false teachers, that he would be mocked and beaten, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that he would be crucified between two thieves, that he would pray for his crucifiers, that he would be stripped naked in humiliation, that those crucifying him would gamble for his garments, that none of his bones would be broken in his crucifixion, that he would be hid by darkness in death, the length of time that he would be in the grave, that he would walk out of the grave, and that he would ascend back into heaven from where he came. That's a pretty radical, specific prophecy. just a few of the some 300. The first one was made about 4,000 years before Jesus was born. The last one about 300 years before He was born. So over 3,700 years. There was prophecy after prophecy about the coming Messiah and then Jesus came and he fulfilled every single prophecy that had been made of him in minute detail. You see, the fact that the Bible is the most accurate book ever written is a, is a divine mark It is proof of its God-inspired nature. 
Thirdly, the Bible is the most prevailing book ever written. It lasts. It cannot be defeated. Psalms 119, 152, David wrote, Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. What's David saying there? David's saying, here's a truth that I know. Your word is going to last, and it's going to last, and it's going to last forever. Do you know what history shows us? History shows us that down through time, there have been great influential people, great world powers that have leveraged their power and their influence and their incredible wealth, and they've leveraged it in an attempt to try to destroy and wipe the Word of God, the Bible, from the face of the earth. And yet here we are holding it today. Let me give you just one profound example. It's related to the edicts of Diocletian. Diocletian was a Roman leader. He came to power in Rome at the end of about a 150 or 200 year kind of downward spiral for Rome. And when he came to the throne, he made the decision, he made the statement, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore Rome to its earlier glory. Rome was a pagan nation that worshipped a multitude of idols. And the priests of Rome began to tell their emperor Diocletian that the reason that Rome is on this downward spiral, the reason that Rome is not as glorious as it used to be is because there is a group of people in our kingdom that refuse to worship the gods of Rome. Referring to the Christians. They refuse to sacrifice to idols and pray to idols. And that if you want to be restored into the good graces of the gods, Diocletian, what you need to do is you need to rise up against these Christians. And then begin the edicts of Diocletian. Initially, they were no longer allowed to worship. Their churches were destroyed. Their holy books were sought out, the scriptures, and were burned And then the edicts of Diocletian got even more severe and Christians were seized and they were forced to either give their allegiance to Rome and pray to Rome's gods or to die. At the height of that, to be found with a copy of the sacred writings, the Bible, the Word of God of that day was a death sentence. It says in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it remained. Let me show you God's sense of humor. The emperor that followed Diocletian, who sought to wipe out the word of God from the face of the earth, the emperor that followed him followed him was a man by the name of Constantine. And Constantine 
not only stopped the persecution, but he was sympathetic to the Christian cause. And he actually commissioned a man by the name of Vesuvius, scholar, a scribe of the day, a Christian of the day, to make 50 copies of the Word of God to be held in Constantinople to be used by the government and paid for by the government. You see, the Word of God stands forever. Though there have been Diocletians that have risen up against it, though there have been men like Voltaire that have said, before I die, I'm going to wipe out the influence of Christianity from the face of the earth, that there have been men like Hitler that have sought to burn this book into oblivion, yet it has proliferated around the globe like no other book because it is unlike any other book because the God who authored it is the God who protects it and advances it. And every time some great world power seeks to wipe it out, it actually results in the opposite. It is spread and expands. It's the most prevailing book ever written. Fourth, it's the most popular book ever written. Did you know that the Word of God is the perennial bestseller of all time? Nothing else even comes close. Why? Because those that have found it to be the Word of God know they need it regularly in every generation is discovering that in some sense, some degree. Number five, it's the most life-changing book ever written. It's the most life-changing book ever written. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek that this book right here, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that's what this is, that this has the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Secondly, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, this book not only has the living power through the Spirit of God to save, but also to sanctify, to equip, to grow, to change life. Let me give you two examples in close of the life-changing power of this book that is unlike any other book. The story I have told before, it's one of my favorite stories of the power of this book uh, to change You've heard of the story, at least in part, I'm sure. Maybe you've watched one of the movies, many of which have been produced around this theme, The Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty. But you may not know the rest of the story that is not a part of that book or those films. You see, following The Mutiny on the Bounty, 
the mutineers put in at an island with the ship called Pitcairn. And on that island, they discovered that there was a small settlement of natives there. There were six men, eight women, and one 15-year-old girl. Little native settlement. And one of the sailors, one of the mutineers, after a period of time, found a way to produce crude alcohol from one of the plants there on the island and begin to produce that, and the story that followed is one uh, of tragedy. And after a short period of time, there was only one mutineer left alive. His name was Alexander Smith. The settlement there was on the brink of destruction. Alexander Smith, in the ship's belongings, found a Bible. Found a Bible. And he began to read that Bible. And just in the reading of the Bible, the Spirit of God opened up his eyes to the truth and he committed his life to Christ as his Savior and began to set up the settlement there based upon the truth of the Word of God that the island and its inhabitants and their dealings with each other would be ordered according to the truth of Scripture. And decades went by. And a ship put in at that island and discovered a colony there. And what they reported that they discovered was a society where there was no crime, no hospital because there was no sickness, no illiteracy. It was as if it was a perfect utopia society, one built upon the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God is the most life-changing book ever written. One final story I love as well to highlight this, and then I'll close. George Whitfield, one of the great revivalists of a previous generation in our country, great preacher that God used in a mighty way. He also had strong opponents. One of those is a man by the name of Mr. Thorpe. Mr. Thorpe was a scoffer. He was an antagonist to Christianity and uh, Mr. Whitfield and he had a club called the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club. And that club existed to scoff and mock and fight against Christianity. and So Mr. Thorpe went and attended one of Mr. Whitfield's evangelistic services to listen to him preach with the purpose of just gathering ammunition with which to mock and scoff him and the Word of God. And so he listened well and he took his notes and he went back to the Hellfire Club. And as was his practice, he stood up in the club with its members to repeat the sermon of Mr. Whitfield. To repeat it in tone and inflection and just as it was shared, but to do it as a way to mock and scoff. And what happened 
to Mr. Thorpe was that as he was re-preaching Mr. Whitfield's sermon, the truth of his own words penetrated his heart, convicted him, dropped him to his knees, and he confessed Christ as his Savior, and the Hellfire Club disbanded because of the power of the Word of God. Oh, what a privilege that we have. That we have such easy access and freedom to have a Bible, to have many Bibles, I'm sure, around your home and in your car and your workplace. But don't let the familiarity with it cause us to forget about the incredible precious reality of what we have in this right here. That it is actually the very living word of God and what we so desperately need in our world is we need to regularly hear from who? From God. And you can every day by just going to this right here. God who spoke it in a moment through inspiration, still speaks it in the moments, day in and day out. The the ink is still wet on the page for you and me. It's that relevant, that timely. Utilize this most precious, tangible thing that you possess for life because it is when we live by the truth that we truly live a life that is free and abundant and full. And you'll find out how to do that right here. Let's pray. Would you please stand? Father, I just again thank you for your word. And I just want to ask you, ask you through the leading of your spirit that you would Help me and help those in the sound of my voice to not take the word for granted, but to take it up on a regular basis and to hide it in our hearts and mull it over in our minds and flesh it out in our actions and our words. In the name of Christ, I pray, amen.